This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. In classic uh, Ellerslie terminology, if you look up the dictionary of you know that Ellerslie has, which we don't really have one, but we sort of have an imaginary one, uh, this is this message is a doozy uh, message. So for those of you that have been around a long time, you know exactly what that means. Uh, that either means long, or that means uh, something where you squirm in your seat, or it just means something. Whoa! Uh, this is uh, a theme. The theme is, I'm, I'm going to give something away. You typically don't do this in, in a message. I'm going to just give it away up front. The theme is mercy. And I have gone back to this theme so many times lately, and you'll notice just in the flow of Eric's development that sometimes there's just a theme that God will just keep hitting on, and I don't know if he's doing it for me. Sometimes I wonder, you know, is this just for me? But in this situation, I actually feel a burden for the church of Jesus Christ that there is a movement of the enemy to nullify the understanding of the mercy of God in our midst, which can lead to the presence of something known as condemnation. And condemnation is just a really bad dude, uh, and it will not stop working until it grinds you into the dirt. And many of us as believers really struggle with this practically, like how do we handle the fact that we have failed in our life, and how does God deal with us? What does he promise to do? What is his intent? And that's what this message is. I've, I've given this message from so many different angles over the years. There are going to be certain moments you're like, wait a minute, have I heard this before? Very likely. At the same time, I feel like it's important to refresh it and to push uh, just that button that, you know, uh, renews it. Uh, there's uh, in the house we're staying at right now, there's this button, and it's, it's called new air, and you press it, and the, the room fills with new air in 20 minutes, supposedly. You know, I, I can't prove it, but that's what it says, right? Uh, and sort of like that, we need to press that button and have just fresh air in our souls. Like the truth, once again, it's still air, right? But fresh, the fresh version of it. We need the fresh version of truth in our soul. Uh, by the way, one of my favorite all-time covers for uh, a sermon, look at that, isn't that great? Who has your back? Uh, uh, I mean, that's just really cool. Uh, it's like a spy from World War II. So here we are in World War II, uh, guys. I, I tend to make it to World War II, World War I. I, I linger in those places often. But there were two evil warlords of World War II. Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, just in case you don't know what they look like, uh, there's a, a, a picture. Uh, it's interesting because most of us separate these two uh, evil characters in history, when in actuality history is going to mix them uh, quite extensively, and it's called the Eastern Front. Uh, at the start of World War II, these two are going to come to a uh, German-Soviet pact of agreement of non-aggression. And it's basically Hitler's way of baiting Stalin into trust, trusting him. And then Operation Barbarossa, the surprise attack of the German Nazis against Soviet Russia, and it's nearly going to destroy uh, Soviet Russia. And so then Stalin is going to retaliate, and that is called the Battles of the Eastern Front in World War II. Most of us don't study the Eastern Front in World War II because we're American and we study the Western Front. And the Western Front to me is far more exciting. If you ever study the Eastern Front, which I have, it is extremely depressing. You know why? It's evil against evil. And who do you cheer for? I mean, it's really a, a challenging one and it's just, it's very dark. And this is an evil time of history where evil is marching upon Europe and it doesn't look good, guys. Uh, so. Joseph Stalin, this is a famous quote of his, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. And it, you know, it's, it's interesting, that could sound like a very dark, demonic man, at the same time, it's also sort of true. 
that when you hear that, you know, 70 million men die in something, you just sort of glaze over and it becomes a statistic. And it's, so it's a truth. At the same time, it shows you sort of his mentality too. It's like, look, we're not just killing an individual, we're killing millions, so get over it. It's just a statistic. So June 27th of 1943, Stalin is going to be uh, in a very desperate place where the Germans look like they're going to overtake uh, the Soviet uh, military, and it's, I mean, it, it, they're backed up. And so he's going to issue order number 227, which translates to us as not one step backward. And so I'll read you what uh, Stalin says. Panic makers and cowards must be liquidated on the spot. Not one step backward without orders from higher headquarters. Commanders who abandon a position without an order from higher headquarters are traitors to the motherland. So if you're being overrun by the, the Germans, you are not allowed by the command, Order 227, to even take a step backwards. If you do, the officer behind you has his gun on you, and he is waiting. If you take a step backwards, he immediately is commanded to shoot. If he doesn't shoot you, then the one behind him shoots him. Okay, welcome to Soviet Russia during World War II. That is one heavy-duty weight right there. Now, I'm giving you that illustration on purpose because I want you to sort of feel it, and I want you to squirm. Because many of us have had the misconception that the kingdom of heaven is based on a similar premise. That one step backward and we're goners. Hitler's Operation Lutich. I don't really like the fact that it sounds sort of similar to my last name, Lutich. Uh, but this is August 7th, 1944. So just as we're going to see Order 227 in 1943, we're going to see uh, Hitler's Operation Lutich. He's going to give a similar order. Here it is, guys. Not one step backward. It's the exact same thing. It's interesting how evil thinks. Evil behaves very similar to itself, even though this is like the conservative form. I know most people don't like it when I call Hitler a conservative, uh, but he's an extremity of conservatism. It's the purity of the race. I mean, think about uh, the moral purity. Doesn't that sound like a conservative agenda? It is. Uh, and then you, on the opposite side, ultra-liberalism ultra is Stalin. And you see the extremity, evil, and you're going to see that it behaves the exact same way. Not one step backward, otherwise we kill you. And so the threat to every German now is that if they take a step backward, they die. And it's the exact same thing. So there's two sorts of leaders. Ones that kill the fearful on the spot and those that correct the fearful on the spot. I want you to ponder this. Because when, as a leader, when someone is responsible to carry out something and they take a step backward or they take a step in the wrong direction. We could just say it that way. How does the leader handle it? And so there's ones that immediately are going to retaliate against that fearful one. And there's those that want to correct the fearful one on the spot. There's ones that find every excuse to reject that fearful one. And those that find every reason to rescue that fearful one. There's ones that find every opportunity to condemn. And there's those that find every opportunity to restore. So I've mentioned two leaders, however, both of those leaders fall into one category of leadership, and that is the first line. They kill, they find an excuse to reject, and they find every opportunity to condemn. Kill them! Both Hitler and Stalin are going to kill very easily. They're going to condemn very easily. Now, the reason I'm setting you up for that is I'm wanting to bait you for a question. What sort of leader is Jesus Christ? So what sort of leader is Christ? Is he one that seeks excuses to destroy or one that will go to whatever lengths necessary to rescue? Now, it's interesting because in a strange sense throughout this message, I want you to begin to answer your own question. However, the enemy is baiting us to actually portray or conceive of God as a Stalin or a Hitler. It's a tactical maneuver by the enemy to get you to think that God's great uh, goal is to bring judgment, to bring condemnation. He's upset. He's mad. He's holy, holy, holy. He's righteous. He's just. And now he's going to get his due. And yes, he is holy. Yes, he is righteous. Yes, he is just. But how does he lead? And what is his design? What is his purpose? Failure. 
It's, a, it's not a word we like to bring up in the church. Pastors are not going to teach you how to fail. That is a very, very bad model. Parents don't teach their children how to fail. Our goal is, as parents is to teach our children not to fail. And as leaders in the church, what is my goal? To teach you how not to stumble, right? So the challenge is we don't spend the time dealing with what to do when you stumble because we want to set you up for success. We want to train your thinking in the realm of success. So that's where we put all our emphasis and rightly so. We want to have your thinking be that of excellence, that of higher standards, that of moving past old behaviors into new behaviors. Why would I teach you how to return like a dog unto vomit? No, no, I teach you how not to return as a dog unto vomit. But then what if you return as a dog unto vomit? Uh-oh, there's no sermon for that one because I don't want to encourage it. What if I, if I were to teach you what happens if you return as a dog unto vomit, you may think, huh, God gives me mercy? Therefore, I may want to return as a dog to vomit because God will still give me mercy. Doesn't that sound like a whole sector of the church that's gone off? In other words, they excuse their returning to vomit because they know God is going to be gracious with them in such a circumstance. And this is the tension that we face in the church of Jesus Christ. How do we move forward? How do we move out of worldliness? How do we move out of compromise? If we keep telling people that it's okay to compromise, and you know, I could say this is the great challenge of the pastor who desires to raise high the standard of righteous living and of following Jesus Christ with abandon, and at the same time, if we don't give a healthy understanding of what to do in the midst of failure, then we end up creating an open door for condemnation to walk into the church and start oppressing people. But what if failure is there? First Chronicles 21.13, and David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So what we see in that is that man's mercies are not great, but God's mercies are great. And so David needs to fall to one side. You put man over here and you put God over here. He says, give me God. I would rather fall into the mercies of God, into the hand of God, than into the hand of men, because God has mercy. Isn't that an interesting thought? Two directions for a fall, into the hand of the Lord and away from the hand of the Lord. So this is going to be important. I'm, I'm setting a, something in motion in your soul and in your understanding. There's two ways that you can fumble. There's two ways that you can stumble. There's two ways that you can fall. You can fall into the hand of the Lord or you can fall away from the Lord. So introducing Liège, Belgium. So this is again, sort of one of those World War I, World War II illustrations. Uh, a special place marked for attack. Just listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. So Spar Charles Spurgeon, the reason I'm gonna give the date for this is just to show you this is long before World War I and World War II. World War I is gonna start in 1914. This quote is in 1856. There are some spots in Europe which have been the scenes of frequent warfare. As for instance, the kingdom of Belgium, which might be called the battlefield of Europe. War is raged over the whole of Europe, but in some unhappy spots, battle after battle has been fought. So there is scarce a passage of scripture which has not been disputed between the enemies of truth and the upholders of truth. But this passage, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, with one or two others, has been the special subject of attack. This is one of the texts which have been trodden under the feet of controversy, and there are opinions upon it as adverse as the poles, some asserting that it means one thing and some declaring that it means another. I think it's interesting because Charles Spurgeon is likening this passage of scripture in Hebrews to Belgium. And I would liken it to Liege, Belgium because of World War I and World War II. You know that this is before World War I and World War II that he makes this quote, and he calls it the battlefield of Europe. But then in World War I, you know how World War I is going to start? By the Germans invading Belgium and breaking Belgium's neutrality and going straight into Liege. I mean, isn't that an irony? And then you know how World War II starts? 
I mean, basically on the offensive is Germany's going to invade Belgium. Uh, I know it's going to start when they inv invade Poland, but the active engagement in military battle is going to happen when they invade Belgium. And they're going to go straight through Liège. And so what Spurgeon is saying is there's this, you know, all of scripture is under, under battle and under controversy and people are debating it and fighting over it. But there's like this one patch of territory in Europe known as Liège, Belgium. And just like in scripture, there's this one patch of territory known as Hebrews uh, 6, 4 through 6 that you're going to see the battle rage. That this is a tripping spot. This is a place of great battle. Isaiah 42.3, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. So one of the things we're realizing about the nature of God is revealed through Scripture. First of all, God's going to go out of his way to reveal his nature. There shouldn't be any question about who he is, right? He's revealed himself. But the enemy has a counter uh, campaign to try and besmirch the name of God, the character of God, to get you to question how he relates to those that are bruised or smoking like this. So a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. The smoking flax or the smoking wick, uh, this is what Charles Spurgeon says, the smoking flax represents a state in which there is a little good. I thought that was a great way of saying it. In other words, it's trying, it's doing a little, but it's not doing all that it was intended to do. So say there's just a little glimmer, flicker of life in you. You have a savior that's going to go out of his way to preserve that, every last bit of it. What if his soldiers step backward due to fear? So we already saw how Stalin and Hitler responded. Kill them. You know that some Christians actually struggle with the fact that if they were to step backwards, if they were to fail, if they were to fall, if they were to fumble the ball, that they're immediately done for. They're as good as dead in the kingdom of heaven. So what if Christ's soldiers step backward due to fear? What would God do about such a mistake? Isaiah 35, three through four, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Just that is interesting because you see how God is going out of his way to say, okay, there's weak hands, strengthen them. Could you imagine as a commander and there's his soldiers in front and someone has weak hands, strengthen those. If they have feeble knees, make them firm. See, and he's the one that does it. Say to those who are fearful hearted. He doesn't say, kill them. He says, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Has God issued an order 227? Does he bear similarity with Hitler and Stalin? Even to put that up on the screen offends me. And yet, so many of us have struggled with the, the fact that the way that Stalin is going to handle his warfare in World War II actually is the way that the enemy has tried to convince us and con us that God handles your soul. That if you take one step backward, you're a goner. Visiting Liège. So let's visit Liège, Belgium, and let's peruse the battle site where many a soldier has died, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. So we're going to uh, read through uh, Hebrews 5, 8 through 14, and then 6, 1 through 9. Okay, so we're just going to go through it. That'll create some context, and we'll go through this. And, you know, it's not often that you read through this much scripture all at once, especially a very complicated uh, challenging passage. And you guys will understand why this is a battlefield right here. This is where the enemy tries to hit. It's interesting to think that the enemy knows scripture, but the only time he's going to use scripture is to manipulate it. He doesn't use it to help you. He uses it to try and harm you. And when we handle scripture as Christians, we don't just handle an individual scripture reference. We handle the whole thing. Because that, that word is, trans, is interpreted inside of its sentence, and that sentence inside of its paragraph, and that paragraph inside of its book, and that book inside of 65 other books. And so we need to remember that in this reading. Though he, Jesus, though he, speaking of Jesus, was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. 
And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe." But solid food belongs to those who are full of, are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Change of chapters, that's what the double hash line is. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of, re of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment, and this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near, and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. Now, I don't know if you guys can pick up pretty quickly why this is such a delicate territory that many of us struggle to even read. This is a very, very challenging part of Scripture that oftentimes is used against the Christian, ironically. It is not written to harm the Christian. It is actually written to help the Christian. It is meant to assist you in seeing the glory of God, in training you in righteousness. Instead, it oftentimes gets used the opposite way because our interpreter has a tendency to be the devil instead of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that an irony? Isn't it odd that the devil would use scripture? And yet I could like mark out and even circle one specific line in there that has been used likely against many of you in this room. Not by the spirit of God, but by the enemy himself. So let's get our observations out on the table. This is a very quick uh, Bible study on this portion, okay? I'm sort of doing all the work for us as we go through it, but my point isn't to teach you Bible study. It's to get thoughts out as quickly as possible. So number one, the writer is explaining the mysteries of the Old Testament and how they showcase Jesus. I mean, that's what the writer of Hebrews is going through. It's like showing Jesus here, showing Jesus here. He's walking through this amazing tabernacle. He's showing us the beauties, the foreshadow of Christ and how then Christ is fulfilling it. So then two, the writer reaches the topic of Melchizedek and acknowledges that he still has much to say about this topic. But since his audience is dull of hearing, he will need to restrain himself from continuing on. So you guys remember in the flow of this, he's you know, waxing eloquent and then he gets to Melchizedek and says, yeah, I need to say more, but you're dull of hearing. I'm not exactly sure if you're ready for this. The writer pivots right here on this point of dull hearing, seemingly moved by a holy passion to see his audience not remain dull of hearing any longer. Number four, the writer enters into an entirely new line of thinking that centers around his audience breaking out of their immature, baby-like state of development. So we have this flow of the revelation of Christ from the Old Testament to the New, the fulfillment of Christ. We get to Melchizedek, and the writer sort of gets distracted saying, guys, you're dull of hearing. I can't even really share this right now. What are you, why are you still babes? You should be mature by now. Instead, we're still repeating. So he's like pivoting right there. You need to recognize that in the flow of the text. He's changing his focus at this exact moment. The writer declares that God willing, they will be moving out of this baby state and onward in their maturity. That's Hebrews 6.3. And key moment right here, guys. With classical parental candor, the writer uses what could be termed a parental shock statement to stir his audience to take their rare opportunity as children in the kingdom of heaven more seriously. Now, I've talked about parental shock statements in the past, and I'm using that. That's my term for it, okay? And it really makes sense to me as a parent, all right? And if you're a parent, I don't know, it could make sense to you too. Number seven, the writer reinforces his PSS, that's a parental shock statement, 
by reminding his audience that being unfruitful ground leads to every evil, while being fruitful ground is the entire point of Christ's redemption. And number eight, the writer concludes that in spite of his rather dramatic parental shock statement, that he in no way expects them to fall away, but is merely reminding them of the glorious reality and potential of walking this narrow way. What is a parental shock statement? Why are they utilized? How do they work? So I'm going to give some examples of a parental shock statement. And some of you that are kids, you don't fully appreciate a parental shock statement or why we, we do them. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I used to walk uphill both ways to school. You know, those types of, uh, parent, we as parents are known for our, what seem like over-exaggerations, right? So parental shock statement sample number one, to the kid that is moving his peas around on his plate. Okay, this is just a good sample, and I'm, I'm wondering if you've ever heard something like this. Look! There are loads of kids that don't have food to eat tonight. Haitian kids usually have food to eat once every four days. If you choose not to eat this food, you will starve. This is the only food you're going to get. If I were you, I would deeply appreciate what you have and demonstrate your thankfulness by eating every pea on your plate. You are showing tremendous disrespect to all those starving kids out there that wish they could eat those peas. All right. I don't know if you've ever heard a parental shock statement before. But it, it seems to take something. When you're a kid, you're like, yeah, I'm really going to starve, right? You know, and it, it, is this really, is there some starving kid out there that really is disrespected because I'm not eating my peas? And yet what the parent is trying to do is give you perspective, global perspective on how beneficial this pea is that you have and how rare it is for so many people out there that are starving to death and you don't appreciate it. He's trying to stir you, or he, could be a she. She is trying to stir you out of your slumberous, you know, self-stupor of, you know, moving your peas to the side of the plate problem because you don't realize what you have. So that's what a parental shock statement is supposed to do. It's supposed to try and awaken you to what you really have. Let's do another sample, a parental shock statement sample number two, to the kid that is complaining about needing to study math. I don't know if you've ever heard this one either. Look, there are loads of kids that don't even have the opportunity to go to school. Kids in Haiti, Haiti gets referenced in my house a lot. Kids in Haiti dream of going to school and getting an education. Not saying that I would ever say this. You know, this is just an example for all of you. <laughs> kids in Haiti dream of going to school and getting an education. If you reject this amazing opportunity sitting in front of you, you will end up dumb. This is the only education you're going to get. If I were you, I would deeply appreciate what you have and demonstrate your thankfulness by giving your very best effort to learn. You are showing tremendous disrespect to all those impoverished kids out there that wish they could have an opportunity to go to school and learn math. There's a whole bunch of kids out there in Haiti, I'm sure, that are like, could I go to school and learn math? And there you are taking your golden opportunity to learn math and you are not appreciating it. So a parental shock statement is awakening you to the tremendous value that you have in learning math. See? I don't know if it worked, though. Some of you are like, I still don't get it. I still don't see it. Eric the Amateur. I certainly would not win the gold medal when it comes to parental shock statements. So my family has a whole running list of parental shock statements that I have used uh, over the years. Uh, I remember walking down into my basement, uh, and I, we had this, well, we still do. Uh, it's wainscoting on the bottom level, so it like goes up about, you know, uh, to belly button height, you know, along the way. And it's, you know, it's very nice. You don't do anything to that wainscoting. Like, you don't put a picture on it, and, you know, and nail something in. It's trim, right? You don't do that to trim. And so one of my kids had taken like a Sharpie marker. I don't know, it could have been a pencil, but in my memory, it's like Sharpie. And <laughs> And this is a long time ago, right? But still, that is like off limits in the house. So I had all the kids come and, uh, to the scene of the crime, and I pointed it out. And I said, guys, if I ever see that, you know, Sharpie marker on this trim again, I mean, whoever does that is in their room for a week without food and water. <laughs> and Leslie goes, really? <laughs> and I go, shh, shh, shh. 
In other words, trying to make that point where they shudder inside to recognize the significance of this. I don't even want them considering it, right? So you come up with this extreme that, yeah, you know, because Leslie's thing is like, so you're going to implement that. You're going to enforce that. If you're going to say it, you need to enforce it. So, well, you know, that, uh, we, were, we were headed to, we were at Disneyland and, and one of our little ones uh, was dragging along and wasn't really having the right attitude. So I made the statement, it's like, if you don't change your attitude right now, we're leaving Disneyland. And Leslie looks at me, he's like, really? Uh, we had just gotten there. Could you imagine we leave? Uh, how much money did you spend on this day, Eric? And you're just going to leave because of this bad attitude. You know, it's like, it's an ineffective parental shock statement when your wife is there to go, really? <laughs> right after you do it. It's like, I'm trying to make a point here that we could leave Disneyland if they don't change their attitude. But that really sort of threw it off. You know, it's not really accomplishing. Uh, I remember some of my parental shock statements don't work very well. Have you ever had it where you're trying to say something that would really get the, you know, the job done. Where you, like, have you ever tried to pick a big number? You know, it's like, you know, there, you know, there are people that have you know, waited in line for, and you're trying to think of a high number and it comes out like 20 minutes, you know, and it's like, someone's looking at that, that doesn't sound very long. Well, I mean, I meant like 20 days, like 20 days for things. And that, that's sort of the way it was. I remember I was in Orlando and one of my little ones was in front of me and I don't remember what they were doing, but they were doing something. And, I made some statement like, if that doesn't change, then, then you're going to bed. Uh, and we're out like looking at Christmas lights. And so Leslie, you, the kids started laughing behind me. And so they, that didn't go over well already because it's undermining my parental shock statement. Okay. This is why I'm calling myself an amateur. Obviously I'm not that good because my kids laugh when I give my parental shock statements, right? The goal of the parental shock statement, to stir a child to fresh awareness, renewed vigor, revived action. See, as parents, we're like, yeah, that's exactly right. That's what they're for. The parental shock statement, uh, sample number three. Oh, we have a Ludi home one. All those other ones I have no relation to. Uh, but this one, the Ludi kid that doesn't understand the privilege of being a Ludi kid. Now, I want you to listen to this in light of Hebrews chapter 6. Okay, because what's happening in that is you're seeing what we could call a parental shock statement. It's very well done because it's the word of God. It's not, you know, Eric Ludi just can't quite rise up to that level, right? But to the Ludi kid that doesn't understand the privilege of being a Ludi kid. For it is impossible for those who were once born into the, Ludi, into the family of Ludi and have been supplied the parental covering of Eric and Leslie, received the love of their Christian home and found the blessing of the inheritance commonly shared by all Ludi children, if they were to fall away from their place in the Ludi family, to ever enter back through the womb of Leslie and re-enter the Ludi home. They have one birth in and no other. So to not take advantage of that one opportunity to be a Ludi kid is the height of insanity. Okay, that's, that's good old Ludi perspective right there. You see, do you not realize the position that you have? And of course, some of you are like, don't you have four adopted kids? Yeah, that's beside the point, guys. You see, there's only one way into a family, and that's through a womb, right? And you only go through that womb once. And so there's no other way in. If you forsake the one opportunity you have, what other opportunity will you get? I'm actually explaining to you Hebrews chapter 6 right here. This is actually what it's saying. It's saying, awaken to what you have, to the privilege that you have in Christ. If you were to forsake that, there's no other way in. You can't enter back through the womb, so take advantage of this one chance that you do have. So the writer of Hebrews, the W-O-H, uh, the writer of Hebrews' parental shock statement. So let's break it down. If they fall away, whew, we don't like that. that. That term has lingered in our minds. If they fall away, says the writer of Hebrews. So I'm going to give some translation for you so you can better understand what is, what is being said. If they shall reject the one means of salvation, the one avenue of life, the one way into the throne room of grace, then it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. Then it is impossible to get them into this amazing grace another way. Seeing they crucify themselves, they crucify themselves the Son of God afresh, seeing they seek an additional sacrifice and request for a salvation via a different means, but the one and only sacrifice of Christ. And put him to an open shame 
and hold with contempt the word of God, his promises, his loving labor on the cross, his powerful resurrection, his Holy Spirit's invitation and the precious grace available only via faith in his shed blood. If they shall fall away, it is impossible. There's the zinger line, guys. There's Liege, Belgium, right there. If they shall fall away, it is impossible. And so what does the devil tell you? Well, you've fallen away. So therefore, it's impossible. And once you get that and you're baited towards that, the enemy will nurse that and milk that for all, of its, wor all its worth. What does it mean to fall away? Have I fallen away? Can I fall away? <laughs> this is, we don't even like this in the Bible. It's sort of radioactive in the text of Scripture. Don't like this. God, why is it I'm so uncomfortable around this? There seems to be something that cannot be recovered. And it's mentioned multiple times in Scripture. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 says, If they fall away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Mark 3, 28 through 30 says, Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Whew, that's good to know. But, what? what's that but doing in there? But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Gulp. Uh, okay, so what does the devil want to jump on right there? See, this is another Liege, Belgium, right there. And some of you have struck your toe against this one, and you understand spiritually how dangerous this can be. It's interesting because the Holy Spirit has a very specific way he wants to minister this to us, but the devil loves to jump in when he sees us getting to this territory, especially if there is sin in our life, if there is failure in our life. He will press on that. That's what he does. By the way, I should probably mention the difference between conviction and condemnation. You see, the enemy works in condemnation. This Holy Spirit works in conviction. They're two very different things, but many of us blend them together. And sometimes we accidentally call conviction of the Holy Spirit condemnation. Condemnation offers you no hope. There is no, it's impossible to repent is what condemnation is. There is no way out of this, guys. You might as well give up. That's condemnation. It's like the shove off the cliff. It's like, yeah, you're doomed anyways. Conviction is an invitation to turn from the edge of the cliff. Yeah, you're walking over the edge of the cliff, which is why the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I love you too much to allow you to keep going in that direction. Turn. See, conviction always offers hope. It always offers a future. When the devil speaks, he removes your future. When God speaks, he promises you a good future. What is that something that cannot be recovered? So I'm going to at least give you a briefing on what that is. You see, you can do all sorts of things to Jesus Christ and be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that's unforgivable. <sighs> okay, and that's really bothered some of you in here. So I'm just going to give you a very simple understanding. The Holy Spirit is the messenger sent from heaven to convince you of Jesus Christ, to convince you of your need for a Savior and the fact that he is that Savior. So the Holy Spirit is going to speak to you, and he's going to convict you of your need. He's going to show you your sin, and then he's going to convince you of the beauty of your Savior. If you stiff-arm the Holy Spirit... If you refuse to listen to him, you know that he's going to keep pursuing you and he's going to keep talking to you. And if you keep stiff arming him, you keep stiff arming him and then you die and you die with a stiff arm. What you have done is you have not allowed the Holy Spirit to change you. You have not allowed him to bring you to, the, to Jesus Christ and there is no forgiveness for that. If you die rejecting the Holy Spirit, nullifying his voice and his truth in your life, there is no hope for you. Actually, that's <clears throat> just good old common Christianity right there. And yet the way it oftentimes gets interpreted by the devil is you just blaspheme the Holy Spirit. When ironically, the Holy Spirit is convicting you right now saying, come back. And when the Holy Spirit is convicting you, you still have hope. The Holy Spirit hasn't given up on you. He's still pursuing you. You still have breath in your lungs. You still have a day to actually turn right now. Take advantage of it. So what is that something that cannot be recovered? 
the rejection of the Holy Spirit, and then you breathe your last. There is no other door of salvation then. There is no other way in. There's no other opportunity for repentance. So if it is not that something that you have done, then what? Mark 3, 28 through 30. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. You know, that's actually a very encouraging uh, statement. It's the problem is that right after it, it talks about a but. And then it talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Nope. Oh, what, what happened to our, our keynote there? Oh, there we go. But truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. So instead of that becoming encouraging, it becomes discouraging because of the but that immediately follows. In other words, you can be forgiven all things, but if you resist and reject the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to bring you to Jesus, to show you your sin, and then to show you your Savior, and to bring you to that Savior, then you can't be forgiven. It's not that you aren't forgiven, it's that you can't receive it because you rejected the very one who was bringing it to you. Falling away. <laughs> have I done that? And that's one of the key battlefronts that many of us have faced. This is Liège, Belgium. So flashback. Remember I said there's two directions for a fall? Into the hand of the Lord and away from the hand of the Lord. There's two ways that you can fall. And when you fall away from the Lord, that's different than falling into the hands of the Lord. To pipto and to parapipto. Uh, isn't that fun? That, doesn't that explain it all for you right there? So which one have you done? So to pipto means to fall. Uh-oh. Have you ever done that? Unfortunately, every single one of us in here knows a little about this. To fall. To fail. To fumble. However, the way that you do it is very, very important. To fall but into the merciful hand of the Lord. And so when you stumble or when you fumble or when you fall, did you turn away from God or did you plead for God to forgive you? Did you come to God seeking mercy? And what are you even doing now? Are you desiring the Lord to forgive you and to wash you? Or are you desiring to go another way and say, I don't want a savior? Well, that's a telltale sign of what's going on in your soul. How about this one, to parapipto? to fall away from the merciful hand of the Lord. I reject his mercy. I don't need his mercy. See, that is to fall in such a way where you're unable to be recovered. If you reject the mercy, well, then there is no mercy for you. But at any juncture, the mercy is still there as long as you have breath in your lungs. To pipto, to fall, to fail, to stumble, to drop from one level to a lower one. And by the way, no pastor wants to teach you how to peep toe. That's not a good thing, guys. It's, I'm not going to teach you the techniques of how to fumble the ball. If I was a good coach, I'm going to teach you how to hold it well so that when you're running towards the end zone, you don't lose the ball. And yet, what if you do lose it? Well, then you have to teach the team how to jump on that ball, how to get it back. To parapipto, to fall beyond repair, to fail without remedy, to stumble without ability to rise, to drop from the edge of the eternal cliff's edge, and to end up in the abyss. To pipto, to fall and feel convicted, to fail and desire to make amends. L look at this list here, guys. You know, there's many of you in here, if not all of you, that understand what it means to fail, to falter, to fumble, to fall. But to fall and feel convicted over your fall, to fail and desire to make amends, to stumble but to realize that God's mercy is still present and available, to drop from one level to another and then repent and return again to the higher level. How are you failing in your failing? Are you failing in such a way where you're rejecting the living God? Saying, I don't want forgiveness, I don't want cleansing, I don't want anything you have. Or are you falling in such a way where you are cut, where the Spirit of God is very present and he's convincing you of your failure and the fact that he loves you and wants you to recover from it? 
to parapipto, to fall beyond repair because you reject, Christ, reject Christ's lone solution, to fail without remedy because the one remedy supplied is refused, to stumble without ability to rise because the outstretched hand of God's grace was declined, to drop from the edge of the eternal cliff's edge and end up in the abyss because you refused to turn around before it was too late. To pipto, to fall with desire to stand back up, to fail with the strong yearning to make amends, to stumble but to crave God's mercy and full restoration, to drop from one level to a lower one, and then with tears repent and return back to the higher level. And now parapipto again, to fall with no desire to stand back up, to fail without desire to make amends, to stumble without any craving for God to show his mercy, to drop from the edge of the eternal cliff's edge because the barrier of pride and self-justification have prohibited a real repentance. So here's... In summary, to pipto is the forgivable stumble. To parapipto, the unforgivable stumble. I have a capital S on that stumble. It's the sin against the Holy Spirit. It's the resisting of the grace of God. It's actually rejecting the mercy that God is giving. God gives mercy, people. That's what he does. But you can reject that mercy. I don't want it. I don't need it. I don't care about it. You don't care about your right relationship with God. You don't care that he is your salvation. You don't want it. You resist it. You reject it. I'm going to hazard a guess that that's not where you are. You desire it and you crave it. You just have the devil whispering to you that God doesn't want to give it. And I want to tell you the exact opposite is true. Our God specializes in mercy. So the base reasoning... I stepped back and God's biblical order number 646 declares me a dead man. So Stalin had 227, but God has 646. And I stepped back, therefore God has declared me a dead man. Now there's no hope. And that is not true. That's why I'm calling it the base reasoning, the low devilish reasoning. It's not the way God thinks. The heavenly reasoning, mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13, mercy triumphs over judgment. So if God, God is a judge, however, if he can give mercy, he is always going to give it. Do you know that even as a parent, I only want to discipline my children to the level that they need correction, to the level that they humble themselves and acknowledge that it was wrong, then my discipline is only that which is going to correct them moving forward. To the degree that they're like, I didn't do anything wrong, I'm innocent, then the discipline level increases. Same with God. To the degree that we humble ourselves, his mercy can kindle. When we justify ourselves and say, hey, I didn't do anything wrong, what's God's issue? That's when the judgment part of our life increases. God desires to give mercy. That's his bent. That's the revelation of his nature towards us. He's a mercy-strong God. And so therefore, he is always going to choose mercy over judgment. Always. The order of operations. The mercy is the first desire of God and always the first desire of God. So take your circumstances right now. God, his first desire is to give you mercy right now. I use the term order of operations, and I've done this many times, and even what I'm about to share with you, I've shared in, in church before, and that is order of operations for algebra equations, uh, which brings back some bad memories for some of us, uh, is PEMDAS, P-E-M-D-A-S, uh, so it's parentheses, exponents, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. I know some of you are just like, you felt like a little kid all over again there. And what's interesting, if you go through algebra, I mean, I never cease to be amazed by math. It always intrigues me uh, how if you do it in a different order, you get the problem wrong. Even if all of your operations were done with excellence, if you don't do them in the right order, you get the problem wrong. You know, many of us, we look at God as having judgment first. Just like in the church, what do we do first? We have subtraction first in our algebraic equations. Like, oh, I don't like them. Subtract them from my life. And we don't realize that love is always the first action for the church, not subtraction. And so we get it wrong, even though we get our action correct. There is such a thing as subtraction from the church. 
you know, where you know, you're supposed to separate from someone. It does exist, but it's not at the top of our list. Hey, let's do that a whole bunch of times. That's an extremity, an extreme situation that's going to happen way at the end of a process. And the same is true with God. You know the judgment is in his order of operations? He will bring judgment. But before he brings judgment, you guys know what he's going to bring? He's going to bring a whole bunch of mercy. So we have, uh, in, you know how your algebraic equations has uh, PEMDAS? Uh, this has M-H-S-L-S-P-F-J. So I gave a, a little sentence for you to remember. My half-sister Linda sews pajamas for janitors. And it, that can help you because you can remember this afterwards. So I gave you another one because some of you have, have already memorized that one. It didn't work very well for you. So I came up with another one today. My hefty speechwriter Lonnie scrawls poems for jailbirds. So whichever one works best for you, you can adopt. Uh, but... I've noticed that most people don't remember uh, my, uh, my, my sentence here. So here's what you can remember. God gives mercy. In his order of operations, when there's a need, he's going to give mercy. And then you know what he's going to do after that? What's his next step? He's going to hunt for a reason to give more mercy. And then he's going to seek out a reason to give more mercy. And then look for a reason to give mercy. Search for a reason to give mercy. Probe for a reason to give mercy. Forage for a reason to give mercy. And then if all of that mercy is rejected, in the end, there is judgment. But only after the root of mercy has been utterly and thoroughly explored. You know, one of the things, I've, I, my, my lens towards Pharaoh in the, uh, in the story of the plagues is different than some people's. I look at it as God giving the guy mercy. And yes, you know, here's one of the things. Even when someone rejects God, God gets glory out of it. And so the end story, since we know that Pharaoh is going to reject God, God still gets glory out of Pharaoh. And even Pharaoh's hardness of heart, he is going to showcase his glory. But wow, what a repetition of mercy. You study the life of Ahab, who's not a good guy. And he is not going to do, he's going to do that which is evil in the eyes of the Lord as a king. And yet over, I don't remember what it was, like a 20-year period, God is going to give that guy, and it's probably like around eight different opportunities to repent. And if that guy didn't even take advantage of any of them. That's what's interesting is the Bible's even going to show a guy, just like Pharaoh, just like Ahab, that is going to receive mercy, opportunity, opportunity, opportunity to humble himself, but he continues to harden and in the end, there is judgment. God is just. But first, before he's just, he's merciful. And his mercy always triumphs over that judgment in our lives. Your God desires to give you mercy. He desires you to be restored. Not so that you can continue going like a dog to your vomit, but so that when he shows you that mercy, you awaken and say, what am I doing here? And like the prodigal, you are going to awaken from a stupor and say, I don't want to remain here. And when we receive mercy in agreement with the Holy Spirit, we don't just return to the Father and then go back to the pig pen. We return to the Father and now cherish what the Father and what his house is offering to us. Ezekiel 33, 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Quote, unquote, our Savior right there. That's how he thinks. That's how he reasons. That's very different than how the devil's been trying to con you into thinking he thinks. Proverbs 21, 13, whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be heard. So I want you to think about that. That's a statement in the word of God, but it also reveals the nature of our God who does not shut his ears to the cry of the poor. That's when you are impoverished in your soul and you're like that prodigal who has had wealth, but then splurged it, mishandled it. And now you're seeing what you gave up. Well, God's not deaf to the cry that you have and your soul is making. Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Micah 7, 18, who is a God like you, 
pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Psalm 103, 13 through 14, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Have you ever had that thought? Does he realize that this isn't that easy for me? Does he understand that I'm not him? Because, I mean, he came and lived it all perfectly, and I really want to, but does he know? Does he remember that I'm not him? Well, just read this. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows it. It's one of the reasons why when I describe living as a Christian, especially our first steps forward, that just as a parent recognizes the first steps of a child learning to crawl or learning to stand, it's an imperfect movement. The design physiologically that God gave us was to a mature gait and walk and run and jump. But a little child doesn't have that physiological development yet. And yet every parent considers it cute. It's adorable when a child toddles a toddle simply means an imperfect walk. Think about that word. And so when you toddle in your Christian growth and development, how does your parent in heaven look at it? Is he upset that it's not perfected yet? Or does he look at the perfection of the sun and see you through that lens and see a work in process that he delights in, even though you still are wearing a diaper? As I oftentimes say, it's cute when you're young and you're wearing the diaper. It's not as cute when you get older. You know, a 35-year-old wearing the diaper isn't as precious, right? And so God wants us to break out of that immaturity. You even see the writer of Hebrews saying that. It's like, guys, you should be growing up. You should be maturing here. But when you are young, you need to recognize that, you know, sometimes there's going to be a parental shock statement to say, hey, guys, do you realize what you have? Do you realize that you've been brought into a home with all these luxuries? You have access to the throne room of grace and you're doing nothing with it. Don't just move your peas around in your plate. Don't complain about having math assignments. You have something rare. Parental shock statement. It's supposed to awaken you. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Jeremiah 31, 25, for I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Matthew 18, 11 through 14, for the son of man has come to save that which was lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying? And if he should find it, assuredly, I say to you, he rejoices more over that sheep than over the 99 that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. You see, God is going to reveal his nature thoroughly. And even though we have Hebrews 6, and it seems to make a very clear statement, that statement still needs to be in light of the revelation of his nature and who he is. Remember Nineveh. Jonah knew something that many of us have obviously forgotten. Nineveh is called the bloody city in history. It is a place where to even remain as a king for long is hard because there'll be a coup and they'll assassinate you pretty quick. And so, and they call themselves the king of kings in Nineveh. Uh, and these guys are going to bring butchery against Israel. I mean, it's terrible stuff that these guys do. They're a murderous batch of people. And Jonah is called to bring the message of the Lord to them. And he's not too excited, guys. And I understand why. But his reason is different than some of us would understand. He's afraid that God's going to be merciful to them. Isn't that interesting? That's his big fear. In fact, that's what comes out in the book of Jonah. Jonah knows something that even we struggle with today. Listen to this. Jonah 3.10 and then four through one, and chapter 4, 1 through 2. Then God saw the people of Nineveh's works that they turned from their evil way. And God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. 
But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish, for I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Sounds like he's complaining about it. And yet this is what we need to hear. Because when the enemy says you're like Nineveh, then you throw this scripture in his face. And God even relented to bring judgment on Nineveh. How much more so? Lord, please relent to bring that on me. If there is still mercy that can be given in my direction, which there is, guys, I want to receive it. I know that I have one Savior, and that's Jesus Christ. And there's no other means by which I can be saved. And so I return to that one house that place of my father, that place where, which I have departed from, I return there to that place, that house of mercy. So is it impossible, guys? Remember, that's what the writer of Hebrews says. So what if a child of God sins? So it's a child of God, because that's one of the other uh, clarifying things. It's like, well, that person sinned, but they didn't know God. But I sinned and I knew God. Okay, what if a child of God sins and sins terribly and doesn't immediately turn from their sin? And I have remembered David's fall. There's a reason why the Bible is built the way it is. It's to actually answer our questions that the enemy tries to bring up. And I don't want you to miss the fact that David, a man after God's own heart, who is going to walk with God, and he's going to do exploits in God's name, is going to fail and fall and fumble in a big way, guys. It's not a small way that he is going to fail. In fact, for most of us, we're like, oh, yeah, boy, that's, a, that's worse than anything I did. Yeah, God's going to use a very extreme illustration, and he is going to show mercy on David. And it's of David's lineage that Jesus comes. I mean, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is still going to come out of this man's lineage. That what an honor that he is still going to receive. That's, that's mercy, guys. But what if a child of God departs from his father's house, forsakes everything he once knew, and spends a season in amongst the pigs? Uh, remember the prodigal's fall? Okay, God, Jesus himself is the one bringing up the story, guys. It's not like, you know, some random person in history brings this up and says, I hope God's this way. Jesus himself is showing you the nature of your father in heaven. But what if a child of God denies the Son of God and even curses in so doing? Well, remember Peter's fall? That's exactly what Peter's going to do. He's going to deny Christ and even curse when he does it. And yet we're going to see Jesus show him mercy and restore him, and he is going to be a pillar of the early church. But what if a child of God makes a lewd and drunken scene? Well, remember Noah's fall and Noah's covering but what if a child of God throws the truth in a pit and sells it for silver? Remember the fall of the sons of Jacob and remember Joseph's mercy. Even the man in this story, Joseph, is going to show mercy to his brothers. How much more so God in heaven? Let's remember his great mercy. Your king has your back. If you're standing in World War II, you take a step backward. If you're in Soviet Russia or you're a German Nazi, you're a dead man. I don't ever want to encourage you in battle to run fearfully or to flee from the battle. But one thing I want you to be assured of is that even when you do fail or fumble or falter, your God isn't seeking to destroy you. He's seeking to restore you. And so your God is your greatest advocate, which is a shocking concept that is hard for us to grasp. But this is the nature of our God. The nature of our God is such that he loves us. Paul, when he was dealing with these same issues, and he was talking about, should we then go on sinning? If grace abounds when I sin, and God's grace, his mercy, is going to be dumped on me when I sin, well, then should I go on sinning? The grace would abound. And Paul's going to say, God forbid. In other words, you don't keep 
doing the mistake just because God is going to be merciful. You are awakened by the mercy of God and stirred to never do it again, lest you ever find yourself in such a position of disrespecting your Lord. You see, this is that, that prodigal that comes home. He has tasted what it means to be away from his father's house. And he never wants to taste that again. You see, God's mercy isn't trying to endorse the wrong behavior. He's wanting you to know this is where he wants you to live. He wants to establish you in his kingdom. He wants to make you stand firm in his way of living. But if there is a fumble, if there is a floundering in your life... I want you to remember, your God is mercifully looking towards you right now, and your king has your back. Father, I ask that you would reveal your mercy to us in a very special way today. I pray, Lord, that you would personalize this message in a way that only you can. Lord, as we enter into a time of worship, I pray that out of the depths of our being, we would proclaim your goodness and we would cherish the fact that we have all been that one sheep that wanders and you have, all, you have been to each of us that savior that has sought us out. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, for your mercy and your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.